Welcome to the Cloud Architects Podcast, a podcast about cloud, technology, and the people using it. The Cloud Architects Podcast is sponsored by Kemp Technologies. Choose Kemp to optimize your multi-cloud application deployments and simplify multi-cloud application management. A single pane of glass for application delivery, Kemp provides a 360-degree view of your entire application environment and even third-party APCs. Download Kemp 360 for free today at kemptechnologies.com. Hi, and welcome to the Cloud Architects podcast. We are still at Microsoft Ignite, and we are enjoying the pleasures of soaking up the atmosphere at Microsoft Ignite, surrounded by geek heaven, geeks that we can interact with all day long. And if you've been to Ignite, you would have known that you can attach yourself to one of the very clever folks that are walking around and attach yourself to the side of their heads and sponge them dry for everything that they know. I have the pleasure of having two of those personalities on the show today. Hi, I'm Mark Morzinski and I'm on the uh, Azure AD product group. Um, I'm on the customer experience team and we work with customers on their deployments of Azure Active Directory. And hi, I'm Tarek Daoud. I'm a program manager in the identity division, which includes Azure Active Directory, same uh, customer success team. Um, and I'm an architect in that team, helping customers deploy our stuff. Guys, thank you so much for coming on the show. Today, we're going to be talking about things, identity in the cloud, which is more than just Azure Active Directory, right? So guys, we've had a bunch of announcements on the show and I don't necessarily want to center around um, just news. What I'd like us to talk about is what are the large themes that we're seeing in identity that are going to affect us as we move forward. So we've got a bunch of very large themes that popped out this year, even in the keynotes, around passwords are dead. But honestly, does anyone really believe that? And how do we even make that possible? Um, yes, um, we believe that. We've been working on it for years, actually, if you're tracking us. Our division runs the consumer space, so yeah. Hotmail, Xbox Live, as well as the enterprise space, Azure Active Directory, underneath Office 365 and Azure. Um, we believe it's happening. We believe it's coming soon. We've been working diligently. We've to d This year is special because for the first time, we've now announced in both the consumer space and the enterprise the ability to log in to your account without using your password. Like if you walk up to a new kiosk straight up, never been there before, or a new machine, no cookies, nothing. You no longer have to type in your username and password to get into your account and then you know do multi-factor after that. Now you can just log in with your phone without ever, without ever having to think about your password at all. That, I think, is a significant step that we're very happy to announce and we'll keep tracking and we'll give numbers. We Eventually we'll show you numbers of how many of the one billion identities we manage are truly passwordless. I think you just said something huge there. You manage a billion identities. Yes, on the consumer side, 800 million roughly, and on the enterprise side, 200 million. Uh, I think it's wonderful to reflect how many identities are actually possible in cloud and how staggering some of those numbers are. Because I think with a billion identities, there's a many millions, or, or sorry, well, many multiples of things that we want to track, like login attempts. And you've mentioned passwords, so surely there's something else that you need to store against that. And 
uh, we, we lose sight of the fact that identity underpins so many things and it, it makes cloud possible, right? And so just the fact that you run something of that scale is quite staggering. Yeah, and here's a, here's a thought. Yeah. In the olden days, uh, when you had an identity access management system, you capture the logs from your ADFS, whatever server, yes. or AD, DCs. Yeah. You dumped them into a log stack stock somewhere. Your SIM system went over them. Yes. And then your analysts ran data mining to see if there's any anomalies. Yeah, by the time you do that in the cloud scale, you know, the bad guy will have gone, yes. gotten, gotten everything they want and left. Yes. So imagine trying to do this for one billion identities. Imagine how much, how big your logs have to be and how big your SIM system have to be. And, then and how in real many time. And exactly. So that's the point. We move from the whole analyst-based approach to machine learning because you have to do it in real time. You have to detect in among all these one billion guys who are walking in today, yeah. how many of them are not the real guy yes. and stop them and catch them and all that stuff or revert whatever bad things they did. And so that's one of those trends that are happening in the IAM industry as a whole is people starting to realize that I have to do this threat detection much faster, more automated way, machine yeah. learning. It cannot be based on humans. So let's stay on the identity theme for, for a little while. Would you say that Microsoft, bear in mind that you, you're a great access vendor, right? So I have a, a primary identity with you, um, but we have an IAM stack, right? And we've seen Microsoft have some investment on that on-premises because we've got MIM. What are we seeing in cloud and what is IAM in terms of that full stack, identity and access management? I think you're doing a great job in terms of access management. We've talked about passwords, passwords are going away. What are we telling customers and what can customers believe us for in terms of the identity piece, bear in mind that AD is one of my identities? And what does that mean in cloud? Yeah, I mean, we just had a session here about some hybrid IAM best practices, and one of the things we touched on was people uh, sometimes ask, well, I already have these SaaS apps in ADFS. Like, why do I need this in Azure AD? Like, what do we do here? And really, ADFS is just an STS, and Azure AD is a whole identity access management solution. So you can do those things like have dynamic groups but automatically populate and assign access to applications. We can delegate this off to the business so that they, like, why is the business creating a ticket to add someone to get access to an application. Like, let's just let them add the right people. We can do all that type of stuff in Azure AD. True, and on a bigger picture, there this is the new Microsoft under Satya with a, with a slightly different mindset. Yeah. In the on-premises world, to your point, we made AD. AD was very successful, very powerful. 90% of Fortune 500 companies have AD. Yeah. Um, but our stuff worked very well with our stuff. Yes. So Exchange Server was very happy with AD. SharePoint Server was very happy with AD. Windows worked very well with AD. All our stuff, Office, you know, every, all our stuff. But you came with a legacy app from something else that spoke something other than Kerberos. Not our problem. So yeah. you ended up buying a WAM solution of some sort. That's you know, right. SiteMinder, uh, Oracle Access Manager, other products, right? Because we didn't even, like, for us, we kind of said, like, it's not our problem. You know, you want to move your app to our code? Stack and .NET will w welcome you here and will manage you. Yes. But if you're staying in these other languages, it's not our problem. Yeah. We ha there's a big mind shift in the cloud. So our leaders always uh, reiterate that Azure Active Directory has to be open to everybody. You got to meet every customer where they're at. The app, we speak all the modern protocol languages, OAuth, SAML, everything. We don't just say, oh, we're going to support only SAML because OAuth is, you know, was invented by the Facebooks and the Googles. It's not yes. our problem. Nobody yes. can do that, right? Yeah. If you're going to become the 
uh, I am engine of a customer whose data could be anywhere, could it be in any SaaS backend, right? Mm -hmm. Could be in Salesforce, could be in ServiceNow, could be anywhere. Mm -hmm. You can't just say I'm only going to support the protocols WS Fed because Microsoft, you know, is good at that one. Yeah. And on the client side, same thing. We work with, as you can see, Office now works on iOS, works on Android, works on Mac. We're not going to necessarily make Office awesome on Windows and ignore everybody else. Yes. And so this whole approach is, yeah, we're meeting the customer. And to your point about the identity store specifically, we're trying to reach out to as many identity stores as we can. We're building um, native HR integration, so we're trying to make help customers on Workday as customers move to cloud HR. Uh, apps like Success Factors on Workday. Yeah. Trying to meet them there, get build schemes where they can provision the identities from those HR systems to AD and to Azure AD. Yeah. So that, um, and um, plug into MIM. So basically, if you had a system that MIM was reading from, you know, SQL, whatever, then you can bring MIM to, uh, to AD and then from AD go to Azure AD. Yeah. But yes, we realize that we have to meet everybody wherever they're coming from. So we, we've spoken about, um, uh, I have an HR system, right? And I don't necessarily want to meet in the cloud. If I'm a company of size, I'd, I may not have, or even large or small, I may not have cloud-based HR. I may have on-premises HR with the identity definition that comes out of that. So my first name, last name, a job description, all of that is updated in HR first. But I want to consume that via my cloud identities as well. And so there's, a, there's an integration story there, isn't there? Yes, so our typical integration story is um, bring the non-AD data into AD using MIM. Yeah. Whatever it may be, CSV files, um, you know, SQL data backend, um, any ECMA connector, uh, the old uh, ECMA connectors from uh, FIM. Bring it to AD and then from one AD bring it to Azure AD. This way our AD Connect is very rich, you can bring in uh, and you can extend even the schema yeah. to add more attributes. So. And that's a typical vanilla model for integrating these sources. It's interesting that you mentioned MIM because there is a, a little bit of uncertainty in the marketplace around what is the future of MIM on premises and is MIM going to a cloud-only product? Is it going to be around on premises? Uh, yes, rumors of MIM demise are greatly exaggerated. <laughs> By the way, for those who are unfamiliar, MIM is Microsoft Identity Manager, which yep. is the newer name for FIM. Forefront Identity Manager, ILM. Thanks for the clarification. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so MIM uh, is, first of all, there's something it does that is essential that is going to keep doing for a long time, which is syncing from two from desperate systems on-premises. Yes. We see that this need is going to be around for several years, right? Um, you've got AD to SQL, SQL to CSV, CSV to LDAP. That's, it's going to keep doing that. Um, it's, it has an evolved role with Azure AD. It's going to be the arm that Azure AD uses to reach deep into on-premises. Yeah. So as you know, the, our sync tool syncs one way very well. On the right back side, it has a limited subset of things it can write back. Yes. Groups, devices, and that's it. But what if you want to write back some users from HR? Let's say you use Cloud HR. Yeah. You provision Cloud HR to Azure AD. And yeah. then you want to push some of these users down to them, not all of them. Maybe you're frontline workers stay only Azure AD, get F1 licenses office, and they're happy there. But then um, your IT staff needs to come down to on-premises, get you know laptops that are joined to the domain, and so on. Mm -hmm. So we foresee that MIM is going to be that arm. It's going to help us write this users down to AD, even past AD into other systems. Yeah. Um, 
another example that actually is probably um, easier is our password solution right now. We have a self-service password reset feature of Azure Active Directory. It will allow end users to recover their credentials on their own. Yeah. And it will optionally bring the credential down to AD if the user happens to be coming from AD, correct? Yeah. Where MIM comes in is, okay, what if that password is needed in down-level systems? You got yeah, some yeah, password yeah. replication scheme. Okay, then MIM plugs into that and takes your password into SAP or some other system down-level that uh, Azure doesn't know how to talk to. So, that, so MIM will have a role, a continuing role with Azure AD as well. So that's great news to hear that, that MIM is going to be around for a while. And I've, uh, um, w without mentioning any customer names, I've just come off a, a project where we glued three tenants in separate parts of the world together using Azure B2B. And so for the folks who don't know, Azure B2B is effectively a guest object, or that's how it manifests in your own tenant. And it allows me, if we're talking about an AAD guest, and there are other contexts here, to effectively create a guest identity in my tenant, even though you are logging onto your tenant, I'm authorizing access to things in my tenant using B2B as the mechanism. So where are we from a, a B2B story in terms of things that we might want to unpack? Is B2B the best thing? Is it going to be around for the next 10 years? I honestly think that right now it's the, the best thing since sliced bread. But we don't always know what we're allowed to use B2B for. And I, for example, had to reach out to the product team once or twice to say, dudes, I want to use this as a contact. Is this supported? And yes, absolutely it is supported. But for example, it didn't reflect in the documentation. So we've spoken to the documentation team and we've, we had a session with, uh, with Brenda and Joe, which is probably going to be punish, punished, published by the time that this episode goes out. So not that we're punishing episodes because they're not badly behaved. So tell us a little bit about B2B and what does that mean in terms of my identity strategy and what do I want to think about? Is that a, a, a box that we can unpack? Um, sure. So as you said, B2B is the best thing since uh, cream cheese. Um, uh, so for those of you in the identity security space, you may be aware that the some of the famous hacks of the last five years, uh, famous retailer, famous uh, movie production company, some of those hacks were actually external identities. That's mm. kind of a vector that security is aware of that. The bad guys don't come through your employees or stealing your credentials or you know, password spraying your endpoints or something like that. The, they found a weaker link, which is We'll find a vendor, an HVAC vendor or a, a plumbing vendor somewhere and who's either careless and will fish his credentials off his machine or some of them are actually selling them on eBay or whatever Yeah. and will sell the credentials. Uh, nothing against eBay. They don't sell them on eBay. <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll buy the credentials. We'll get in as a vendor and then um, through cracks in the system, traverse sideways and traverse vertical and then we get to domain, you know, enterprise admin in the external forest, and now I can jump across to the uh, main forest and so on until I get to uh, the compromise, the real assets of the company. Yeah. So B2B for us in general trying to solve this problem, which is rather than give people credentials in your tenant and compromise and have that be a backdoor, instead you invite the users to come to your tenant, but they authenticate through their tenant, and your tenant basically trusts their tokens. You get a shadow object, as you mentioned, in your tenant that you can use to authorize. So that object, you put them in the right groups, you assign them to the right apps, and they get access, and you apply conditional access policy to them, and that happens to them. You know, MFA them, do whatever you want to them. 
but the authentication happens in the other tenant. So you don't know the credentials and they don't uh, have credentials in your tenant. This way it creates this kind of nice separation between the two uh, authentication systems. Well, the other thing with that, I think, is that one of the biggest pain points of these guest user objects is that you have to maintain, like, do, should they still have access to things? Like, do they still even work there? Yeah. And then if they forget their password that your help desk now has to manage that password reset, like you can get rid of all of that now with B2B where like if the, hopefully that uh, your business partner, when that person no longer works there, they terminate that account, right? Like we're gonna yep. lose it and they would lose access to the stuff as well as they can do their own password reset. Like that's all on their own environment. You don't have to deal with any of that anymore. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then we announced a bunch of new capabilities this Ignite uh, where we're actually in our P2 tier, we're announcing a bunch of access review capabilities around B2B guest users where you can uh, review their access, have a sponsor on your side that kind of checks uh, do they still need access to this stuff? Is he still a supplier of our company and so on? And we've announced even a entitlement catalog where basically um, what we're calling an app catalog or app package where basically you can set up a self-service where they can actually, they're a place where they can come request an account. They go to a sponsor. They declare themselves a supplier or a reseller or whatever. Yeah. Somebody on your side said, looks at them and says, yep, he is what he claims to be. Yeah. And based on their classification of that a B2B user, then they end up getting a catalog of apps. Okay, mm -hmm. here's the things you can ask for. This SharePoint site and this SaaS app and this, this. And then they get access to this stuff and you don't have to manage it. And then you get access reviews on top of that. So. so B2B solves a wonderful problem, but it also creates a new one. I've got objects I need to manage now. How do I know if those objects are being used? When do I know that I can delete a B2B object? Yep, that's where the access review. So so you can do it manually. Attestation, effectively, right? Attestation, yes. So access reviews will provide you with attestation. The ability to say, all my B2B users, for example, need to attest every three months to something. Yeah. Right? I'll send them a, do you still work with us? You know, yes or no. And based on their response, or if they didn't respond, and we'll give you hints. So, for example, the ones that are still actively accessing your apps, we'll mark, they will tell you these are active. The ones who haven't in the last three months, we will tell you these are dormant. Yeah. So you have, you know, more grounds to kind of kick them out. Mm. Um, you could either have that review be sent to one somebody on your side or to have them self-attest each of them, answer the for themselves, why do I still need access to your stuff? Mm -hmm. But you could also target it by group, target it by app. So you can tell the app owner, it's your responsibility to tell me these 20 people who have access, including those five B2B users, do they still need access? So different, uh, different companies do it also in different ways, so we're trying to support as many of them. And you can use those access reviews for on-prem groups as well. So one of my customers that I worked with, um, they by default give everyone VPN access by default. And they realized that like maybe not everyone needs that. Yeah. So what they did was they did the self-attestation um, of it and said, okay, do you still need, like, do you use VPN? And they figured out that a large majority of their users did never, never use the VPN at all. So now they're able to pull those people out of that group. They cut back on those licenses for VPN. They can start actually making the case for like ripping the whole thing out and moving towards some of the more zero trust network stuff mm -hmm. because like this access review and their um, auditing team loved it because it's a, a nice UI. They can see like who's in there. They can actually remove them from the group and all that. But this was something that they had, they kind of stumbled on themselves because they just realized that they just gave everyone this for by default and that's what they've always done. Yeah. And that now they're like actually really starting to think about, well, hey, maybe we, sh we don't actually need to do that anymore. Yeah. yeah. And they're basically, they're out Azure AD doesn't even have to be involved. It could just be a group in Azure AD and ask, ask them to attest why they're in it. Yes. And they don't have to be even using it for access or anything in Azure AD altogether. Yeah. Right? yeah, that's wonderful. I'd like to come back to 
what there is a little bit of disbelief around, which is, um, is it even possible to, to run a world without passwords? We've been preaching to users for years about password complexity. We've had posters up on walls, right? You know, uppercase, lowercase symbols, and don't write them down. It's not your dog's name, because it's easy to guess. And so there's password fatigue that's out there, and that's real, right? And users would be doing flick flacks if they could get rid of passwords. But how can we actually make that a reality? And as the security officer, how do I trust that, right? Because it's something that I can enforce is something that I can use to pass audit. So how do I do this in a world where you're saying in the new world, there's no passwords, right? But I trust passwords. They're inconvenient, make no mistake. But they are something that I can manage, I can change, I can regulate. So you're telling me that I don't need to have a password anymore. But what about these other systems that I may want to log into? Surely I still need a password for those. So there's a, there's a, a couple of questions for you there. Um, so it's a big story. So let's break it down into pieces. If you are a CIO or CISO who believes in passwords, you have a problem. <laughs> Let's start with that one. Um, passwords are the weakest credential of all the credential systems, and, and we can go into each credential has like three vectors. One is uh, how guessable it is. The second one is how easily usable it is. Um, the third one is how revocable it is. How can I just quickly revoke it? And so, passwords score very low on guessability, score very high on ease of use. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then score very high on revocability. Yeah. Reset password, pick another one. Yeah. Correct? Um, but scoring very long guessability is not a good security position for passwords in general. Yeah. So if you think of any other credentials, for example, SMS, or um, think of the things you think of as second factor, think of them as just credentials in general, right? Yes. Phone call, FIDO, biometric, all of these. So for example, biometric, um, very high, very difficult on guessability. There's no guessing, it's yes or no. It's, it's a, you know, 90 something match or not. It could be like your identical twin or something to get yeah, by. Yeah. And then there's- Unless I've stolen a thumb. Then chop somebody's, well, at that point you assume they're gonna call help desk and say, hey, I'm missing <laughs> my thumb, yes. right? Um, very, um, very weak on revocability. You can't revoke a biometric. Yeah. You can't revoke your eye or you can't revoke your finger, right? Yeah. So, um, so that's kind of how you look at credentials in general. So people in the business of security know that passwords score very low on the guessability part. Yeah. It's just that it's the ease of use and the revocability that makes them uh, popular. Yeah. Um, being popular does not necessarily mean you're the best. It just means you're popular. Yes. We all follow Twitter. Yes. Right? yes. So um, how are we going to get there? So the way we're going to get there is we're going to hydrate the system with other credentials first. Mm. That's how we're going to get to passwords. Basically, Make it easy and seamless for users the next time they're coming into something mm -hmm. to pop a question and say, hey, would you like to give me your phone number? Mm. Right? Maybe when they're doing something more sensitive, you pop an innocent question. That's kind of where the consumer industry is a little bit better than the enterprise industry, frankly. And I say this for all the security CISOs, you know, uh, CSOs, even architects sitting there, listen, because you're being beat right now. Yeah. In the consumer space, they're getting very, very good at, because they have these funnels, right, where they track, oh, drop off, oh, my app lost everybody when I did this thing, right? Yeah. Oh, I have to, can't do that anymore, right? Yeah. Because they have these funnels, they now know that when you ask for security information at the right time, you usually get it. We run, like I mentioned, 800 million 
consumer service. So we saw that if you ask a user to give you their phone number at the time they're about to do something important, there's a 90% chance they'll give it to you, 90%. If you just ask them at a random time when he's logging in about to check his mailbox, there's like 1% chance he'll actually answer you versus 90% he'll just cancel out. Yeah. Or even close the browser and check his mail from some other device. Yeah, yeah. What we'll do is we'll hydrate the system with our credentials. So for, from our perspective, for example, we're uh, adding support for hardware tokens, we're adding support for FIDO credentials. Um, We'll hydrate, hydrate. In the enterprise space, our big bet on the desktop is Windows Hello because mm. that's just 2FA when you log in. Yeah. You don't even have to prompt for MFA at this point. The guy just has something he has, the device, and something he is, the biometric, or something he knows, the pin. Uh, that presumes, though, that you have hardware that's new enough to support Hello. Yeah. yeah. So in a few years, so that's how we're going to get there, right? In yes. a few years, just about every laptop is going to have a proper yes. TPM chip and security on it. And so you'll be, it will just be, Secure by default. This is kind of how we're running in, in, inside Microsoft IT right now. I log into the machine; it's 2FA already. Yeah. Well, I can log into my mailbox. I can log into everything. All all our mailboxes require 2FA. Just that I never get asked for a second factor because I'm logging into Windows Hello for Business. Yeah. So, but outside of Windows Hello for Business, we're just going to hydrate more credentials. We're going to give you more knobs. You're going to see some of this, these experience light up by the end of this year, beginning of next year, in our own interfaces, where you're going to be able to say, oh, add phone sign in just like we announced today, right? Add SMS sign-in, add phone call sign-in, and then you'll be able to get telemetry from us that tells you how many people in your uh, tenant are using each. And when you get to 100% of the combined, then you can just uncheck password. And then the next day, rather than getting password, they get the other thing they signed up for, and they'll sign in and they'll move on. Mm. Mm. And then there'll be no, no, no password in the system. So that's kind of the, pl the, the big game plan we have, basically. Yeah. yeah, I think the thing around this to keep in mind, and this is kind of like a more general thing, uh, don't try to solve everything at one time. And when we work with people on their deployments with Azure AD, we spend, I feel like I spend like eight months when we're talking about doing a multi-factor thing, and we go, well, what if the, you know, the person, uh, you know, has a replacement phone, and then, you know, they dropped it, and then they were on a submarine, and they need to get a mail, and it's like, what are we talking about? Yeah. Right? Like, what are we talking about here? And by the time we spend all this, like, breaking this down, now we have some sort of uh, breach, and then, like, guess what? Everyone's getting MFA Monday morning, like, no matter what. We're yeah. all going to do it. Yeah. So, same thing with this passwordless stuff, is, like, start working and fixing the things that you can, and, like, we'll, eventually, over time, you will get there through all of this stuff. And another part about this, too, with, um, is, is the apps, right? The app that you have that's from 1997 that yeah. only does LDAP. Yes. L not LDAP S, but just LDAP auth. Yeah. Kill like, it. that stuff's going to have to start going away, right? Yeah. Like, this is not some, like, miracle thing that's going to fix this. Like, these apps seem to get, need to get upgraded as well. Mm. And that's a tough pill to swallow, like, all, again, all at once. But when you start to move the more modern apps into Azure AD and you're doing these, like, SaaS apps and we're getting to that kind of stuff, once you start to kind of reach critical mass, it makes it much easier to make the sell to like, hey, this app that's super old, we should upgrade it, even though it's going to cost us a lot of money. Well, this, you know, it's kind of by itself now. Let's, hey, let's, let's move it with everything else. But versus just now saying, okay, we're going to go passwordless. The first thing we do is we're going to replace this super old app. It's a real hard sell to start with that. But once you kind of reach that critical mass, like about 40%, right, you start moving towards that, then it becomes everyone's on board with it and <clears throat> we start going for it. Yeah, and that's a very good point. Um, same strategy with MFA, right? You're trying to roll MFA. Don't try to solve for 100% of your company. There, You will find a guy, that guy, the submarine guy, yeah. whom you can't MFA with any existing solution right yes. now, right? Yes. 
It's just, just don't. Like, I mean, of course, he doesn't even have internet, but somehow he needs them. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> so yes. just start with your IT department. They're the ones you have the closest relationship with. They can give you direct feedback. They're, tech, they're techies. Can you enable MFA for them? Yes. A year or two from now, you'll have the same conversation with passwordless. Can I just make you all passwordless? You guys are very critical. We cannot accept a password for you. Because if it's been fished somewhere, some other site, uh, I'm sure most of your listeners are aware with, like, have I been pwned, the website, yes. right? Just go there and put your work. If you've ever gotten a share from some uh, uh, document sharing site somewhere, you, they probably forced you to create a local account. And most of your non-techie workers, when they were logging in, they probably put their work password because it's work-related. Yeah. yeah. So just yeah. Get, so it's, it's going to be the same thing. And then get your C-level guys, your sensitive accounts, get them on next and then uh, same thing with the approach we're doing with block legacy off yeah you know what you don't have to block legacy off for everybody yes there is that one billing account that's still using imap to send mail some SM unauthenticated smtp yes. that keep that guy al <laughs> alone leave him alone yes. but just get your leg your c-level people off legacy off that is the number one brute force password spray backdoor let's just define what legacy auth is in your context excellent question um Legacy auth are the legacy email protocols um, that, for authentication, they collected the credentials from the user and sent them over the wire to the server. There was no way for us to intervene and show. We can't go back to the client and ask for anything more. So we can't say, oh, 2FA, or hey, do a device check. Nothing. It's done. The MAPI server, the POP, whatever, collected the credentials, send them over the wire, it's done. You got to answer with yes or no, that's it. Yeah. And so as a service, you are put in the exchange online, is put in a bad spot. Like, okay, all I have is this username and password. <laughs> what do I do? And so um, we're making a push to shut it down. But unfortunately, a lot of the mail clients in people's hands today, many of them start with IMAP as yeah. a default, for example. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I th I th again, uh, getting 30% better is better than 0% and like yes. trying to solve to 100%. And then you, once you're at 30%, then you try to get from 30 to 45% better and you keep working your way through that. And again, yeah, some app clients, like mail clients, they're going to need to get, get upgraded. You can't keep using Pine, right? Like I know that you love it and it's great, <laughs> but like the, the world has moved on. And like SMTP was, I think the RFC was like 1981 or something like that. Yeah. Like it's a different world than it is. And we like, that's what's going to have to change. Like there is no, you know, we have these discussions with customers and they say, okay, you know, we need to get, we need to get secure. So what do we do? And say, okay, well, you need to move off this legacy protocol. Like, well, we can't do that. Well, then you need to do this. Well, we can't do that. Or then we need to do this. Well, we can't do that either. It's like, well, there is no fourth choice that is do nothing and we're secure, right? Like yeah. we need and, to. And somehow we still become better. <laughs> right. Like we need to do something, do this stuff. And it's, it's going to be, again, a tough pill to swallow for some folks, but start small work your way through it you'll learn as you go yeah and then once you start reaching that critical mass then all of a sudden now everyone else kind of comes along for the ride and it seems it seems weird that that business unit is not been doing mfa because we've been doing mfa for 10 months and it's been fine so why why can't they do mfa yeah yeah, yeah and as you said mfa could be as friendly as the enterprise equivalent of face id if you've got an apple device but for the enterprise in this case it's windows hello or something that gives me windows hello compliance and that can also be something that comes in from the third third party market. So that could be a, a biometric login on my favorite brand of, of notebook as an example. So as long as I don't have to type in that password or I've got a hello capable camera, something that gives me that level of, of authentication where effectively my password is null and void. Right. I, th I think the point here is password is a solution 
to authentication. You're not tied to passwords, right? And we say, oh, we have policies around this, and this is a thing. It's, it's a, a solution. We, but we, at the end of the day, we're trying to authenticate. Yeah. And we can authenticate lots of different ways. Which brings up, since um, you brought up the security officer who's been convinced that the policy of said complexity is, is, is a good thing. Um, because we you pass audit with it, right? Well, that's the one I'm trying to, this is a newsflash. Um, we've worked with NIST now, so we published guidance in 2016 that says, based on our testing with MSA, with Microsoft account, um, the, the standing recommendations in the industry are bad. Those recommendations were, um, don't tell the user if it's the username or the password that are wrong, uh, require long, complex password, four character set, no less than 12 or whatever. We found a lot of this in uh, password age. Yeah. We found these to be not very conducive. We found that they make the hacker's job easier. Um, our director of uh, that team, for example, was uh, sitting with a customer. I was sitting in the meeting, and he was telling them, if you have a password policy of 12, four-character set, um, 90, I can tell you the capital is going to be the first letter, the smalls are going to come after that, the numbers are going to be at the end, the symbols are going to be after the numbers, and if your password policy is this age, then the numbers are going to be this. If it's this age, then the numbers are going to be that. Because it's going to be years, or it's going to be months, or it's going to be you know f uh, seasons. Yeah. Based on it's 90 days or 70 days or whatever, right? So you, so actually, the bad guys' choice for cracking your hashes or guessing your passwords or whatever now becomes easier, not harder. So based on that, we updated our guidance to say a minimum of eight to make the password hashes interesting, and then actually just let them do whatever they want as long as you block bad passwords, meaning check for the you know welcome or password123, the infamous one, right? Those great ones. <laughs> as long as you block the great ones, right? And those those great ones are not simply all guesswork, no. Any bad guy, when he's trying to guess hashes, they, he should just create a website, sign up for whatever, sports magazine, gaming, whatever, and just put the same policy as, as your corporate policy, and people will, will tell them exactly what their employees are telling them. Like people pick the exact same passwords that their employees are picking. Right, it's human behavior, yeah. and then he will just try that against your site, right? So, yeah. uh, make it harder for them to guess, and just block the famous bad ones. Yeah, I think uh, when we talk to customers about this, there is a lot of pushback about the password policy. But I would love to know: is there anything else in in IT that you have not relooked at since like 1996? Yeah. Right. I mean, like, yeah, it's a network protocol. Yeah, right. Oh yeah, we're only doing you know uh, <laughs> vampire taps, right? I mean, like, what are we talking about? So, I, I think. It's a again. It's a little hard to to take on, but it, you really need to reevaluate what the password policies are. And, and we've yeah, we've succeeded with NIST. NIST changed their guidelines. Well, that's the newsflash I'm trying to say. 2017, they changed their guidelines. Yeah, when we have these conversations, we would show them, send them our white paper, and it's about 15 pages, and it's really easy to read. And uh, they would read, and they go, "This makes a lot of sense. Like I get it, but NIST still says this." And then the NIST had their guidance, and we say. Take a look at the NIST guidance. It's actually really, really similar to what we said. And then they're like, yeah, but still I don't want to do it, right? Like they still want to hold on to this thing because that's what it's always been. And that's what becomes a security theater and facade. You do oh, yeah. not want to be doing security theater. You want to be the real security. Yeah. And so moving off of it, so this is actually like, by the way, our product now has both, it will ban bad passwords that we're aware of. We, you know, we, uh, we scan dictionaries. We know of all the bad guys in the dictionary we try. The top 1,000 bad passwords in the world, we're, we're aware of them. We, we, we prevent them from you coming to your tenant. But then we also give you the ability to customize your own bad password list because for certain corporations, let's say I'm a, you know, a sports drink maker, 
Um, uh, it's just very know. brand specific. People right? tend to put that you type know, of thing. I don't know. I'm, I'm, you know, people working for Ford may have Mustang as a very popular pass, while yes. people work for Toyota might have Corolla as a very popular pass, right? And so you want to kind of also prevent those. Yes. So we now give you the ability to customize your brand password list, and we check for passwords close to it too. So Corolla with a zero versus an O, we'll pick on both of them, stuff like that. So yeah, wonderful. So one of the um, the big themes this year at Ignite has also been single sign-on, and um, true single sign-on. Right. So. Um, you mean not, not the illusion of single sign-on where yeah, the same password's used all over same the place? Same sign-on. Or uh, reduced sign-on, right? So we <laughs> used to have, uh, just because my password exists somewhere else doesn't mean that I, and, and I'm retyping it, but it's the same password. That's not single sign-on. So what's what's the skinny, you know? <coughs> True single sign-on? Yes. Um, so let's actually talk about the, the popular approach. So let's start with um, same sign-on. Same sign-on is end-user implemented, right? So I get hired at work. I work for this company. I pick my uh, you know, super secret password, welcome123. And now they send me to you know, Box to access some document shares. Box says, welcome, sign up for an account. What's your email? You know, Tarek at thiscompany.com. What's your password? Well, this is work-related, welcome123. And then everywhere I go, welcome123. So yeah. that's same sign-on. Yes. <laughs> that is not good. Yeah. Um, so th this is not good for a reason, not just because it's silly, but the user is being taught that there's going to be a form-based auth everywhere, and they're expected to surrender the username and the password. That just mentally makes them excellent victims for phishing, right? They're going to get an email, they're going to click on a link, and guess what? A form-based. What do I do when I see a form? And it's going to look real good, too. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. you trained good. him now. You've let you've, so those of you who still have these solutions that push passwords to different apps and pop-up login forms everywhere. Remember, even if the user has the same password, you're just making him a ripe victim for uh, phishing. Yes. The second layer is the layer of, okay, um, I'm just going to ask him to type in the password once in the morning when he comes in, and yes. then I'm going to have some super secret um, solution, you know, MIMFIM created that pushes passwords everywhere or some other solution that does password sync under the hood. Um, that's not good either because, as we mentioned earlier, it is the... The bad guys are bumping their heads against Google, against Microsoft, against Amazon, against you know Facebook. They're trying to get into all these accounts, but they have the best success rates against smaller SaaS vendors. Nothing against those guys. Much respect to them, but they don't spend as much money on their IAM and security as you know these big providers do. So if you ever been, we mentioned it earlier too. Have I been pwned? And you uh, put in an account you've had for uh, several years, you'll see that you were in the you know, one box hack of 2012 and in the Dropbox hack of this and in the LinkedIn hack of, not to, you know, bash it, LinkedIn, our own company has been compromised. You know, you, you find that you're in the LinkedIn hack of 2016. It's very illuminating. Yes, it's very, <laughs> very disturbing, right? So that's the main reason you want to get the passwords out of the SaaS apps. You want to get the password. You want to have true single sign-on configured with SAML or OpenID Connect where the app receives a token, not that you simply are having a LastPass kind of solution that you know, dumps the credentials in a form and hits submit on your behalf. Yes. But true actual single sign-on. And I think that part kind of gets lost in the SaaS app part. People focus a lot on, oh, it's a better end user experience. They don't have to put their password, they get single, you know, single sign-on, but they don't realize what a great security benefit it is to have that. And it's really, really hard 
to really improve your security if your credentials are in these little different SaaS app areas, right? Because how can you, you know, put your arms around it? Like if, they, if they've been compromised, how do you know it? it you yeah. can't do it. And if you do true single sign-on, then you can have the access policy be an IAM team decision, not an app owner decision. So they're launching Box. They're going to data that is corporate. Your company policy should be that you know if you're accessing data off corp, let's say or inside corp even, let's do MFA. Well, if you have a local credential in the SaaS app, you're gonna have to go turn on MFA. Hopefully, the provider has MFA, as opposed to no. If the app is waiting for a token from your IDP, then your IDP Azure AD or, or whatever will issue before authenticating the user and giving a token. It will do MFA, second factor, third factor, whatever factors you want, and then it will send the user back. And so this way you get central enforcement of conditional access or access management policy on your side rather than relying on the judgment and the wisdom of the app administrator. And then the higher level that we're hoping to get to um, with things like Windows Hello for Business, but just like Windows 10 in general, is you get seamless single sign-on where the OS has a token for you, not yeah. the apps. Yeah, That's beautiful because then if you've done MFA once for the first app, let's say, then the next and the third and the fifth, whether they're in the browser or not, whether they're rich clients or you know, individual, individual native apps or the browser, everybody's getting single sign-on from that token in the OS. That's the, what we, uh, with the Windows 10 story that we have. Uh, I think that's kind of the future and we're hoping to do, duplicate that in the mobile world as well. So, because we think that's the best, right? That you don't get MFA in Salesforce because you have a data protection policy that says MFA out data outside, and then when you launch ServiceNow, you get MFA again because a second app because yeah. different rich clients. In this case, no, the the OS will know that you've got you've done MFA or so. What about on premises? What do you mean? Well, <laughs> it sounds like we've got an awful lot of uh, investment in cloud, right? And I've got this amazing sign-on experience. I've got Windows 10. I've got these modern protocols. But how do I take advantage of that on premises? And surely there's some re-architecture required in order to realize this for my current line of business applications. Yeah, so <coughs> we have a, a shortcut for you if you happen to be from our stack. So yeah. if, you're a .net, if you have a bunch of .NET IIS-based Kerberos apps um, that we're doing single sign-on on-prem with, you know, with your domain control with Kerberos, or Windows Integrated Auth as we call it, WIA, then those apps are a gimme when it comes to Azure Active Directory and moving them to the cloud because we have a solution called Application Proxy. And you can use that one to, without even moving the app off of wherever it is and without punching a hole in your DMZ, you can install a lightweight agent on-premises that does an outbound 443 connection. So it bypasses your DMZ and you don't have to punch any holes. And then um, that agent will give you an external URL. The serv our service will give you an external URL. And when you hit the external URL, we will tunnel down to that agent. We will hit the, the app uh, with Kerberos constrained delegations. We will impersonate the user from uh, the who authenticated to us. We'll mm -hmm. find him on-prem. We'll find out what his SAM account name is. We'll impersonate him with a Kerberos ticket. Yeah. Get the content from the app, stream it back up to you, and you won't even have it. So it's very smooth. And then you can apply all the Azure AD controls. So you can have conditional access, you can put MFA, you can put device compliance, all you want on the app. Mm. And we'll do it from the outside before we tunnel down to the app. Yeah. So that's an easy out. Yes. Unfortunately, I don't think that solves 80% of the problem. There's still the, you know, the ERP solution you bought 20 years ago that's yeah. doing header-based app. Um, LDAP. Uh, yeah, LDAP bind apps. 
So and we've got strategies for each. Basic auth. And basic auth, yes. So um, for each of these, we've got solutions, but you have to be, as the IAM leader of your organization, you'll have to be you have to be aware that you're going to have to do some effort to move these apps. For example, uh, LDAP bind or basic auth apps, we have a way for you to lift and shift the VMs to Azure, mm -hmm. put them there. You can push a button on our side that will project two domain controllers with them. We call it Azure Active Directory Domain Services. Mm -hmm. And now those apps and those user, your users will have the same UPN. If you're syncing your hashes to us, they'll have the same credentials. And now when they authenticate to your apps, can, the app can do LDAP bind to that domain controller, and now you can shut down the actual copy of the app that's on-prem and eventually shut down AD itself. Yeah. Right? That's one thing. If you have header base, we have a solution with uh, uh, ping access partnership with AppProxy to try and help you um, provide some of these headers to some of these apps. Uh, again, there's complexity there. There's different, it's different if it's SiteMinder versus if it's... Uh, Oracle Access Manager, there's all kinds of different headers that you have to compensate for. But um, those, and then at some point you're gonna have to ask yourself, should I just modernize the app? Can I modernize the app? Can I just put the effort to convert it to SAML? Uh, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah the, the other part of that too is a, a, lot, a lot of customers I've worked with have found that maybe this LOB app that we built in 1997, there's now a SaaS app for that. Yes. And we don't have to maintain this and we can just we can move, move to that. So one of the things I would tell you know, the traditional on-prem people that are still, you know, deep in the weeds in Active Directory every day is start to learn these newer protocols. Like, understand SAML. There's, people use, like, SAML P and interchangeably with SAML, and there's all kinds of things with that. Understand OAuth, yeah. OpenID Connect, because that's where all these apps are going to go. And at the end of the day, it's still authentication and authorization. Instead of it being Kerberos-based in groups, it's going to be through a bearer token and, and things like that, right? So you should spend the time because that's where all this is going to start to go. That's that's really great, Mark. Uh, because uh, often the the IT pro has no idea where to start, right? So I've been told that I need to modernize my apps, and very often there's a, a lift to shift. Let's go to the cloud. Business has decided we want to switch off our data center investment, but I, I have these crusty old apps. Yesterday I was talking to a gentleman who had to lift and shift an airline application that was written in 1992 in Delphi. Right? There is no modern authentication context I like, there. I like Delphi. Yeah. yeah. Look, I, I started in Delphi and always was, was uh, w one of the more modern languages that I eventually transitioned to. So a lot of time in Delphi 2 and Delphi 3. And I, l I loved what Borland did at the time. But, you know, from a, a security context, how do we modernize that? Right. So I think the things you should go through is, first of all, you have an application inventory, which start that. If you have an application If you have inventory. one, right? Yeah. If you don't, if you start, don't have one, build one. Start there. Yeah. Then you ask yourself the question, okay, how many people are actually using this application? Because sometimes you find out it's like, oh, it's these five people and they're doing just like this one thing that can now be accomplished in like Adobe Reader or something, right? Yeah. Like you don't have to use the app that they're using, right? So you gotta yeah. figure out what they're using. Okay, so then you determine, is the app still required or not? If it is, okay, so then we can either um, buy, like buy new, right? Like maybe there's a new SaaS app or something that we can use that does the same functionality. And or it can auth to us in the manner that we want to be authenticated In to. a yes, modern yes. protocol. Excellent yeah. point. Don't buy one that still does basic. <laughs> That's very, very, uh, yeah, very good point. Then, okay, if, if we can't buy new, you know, um, do we wanna spend the time to modernize it? with those protocols, or do we want to go the lift and shift route? That's kind of the three 
choices. Yeah, and um, and in the case of the ones that you own, that you own the code for, or do I want to modernize it myself? I mm. just rewrite the auth stack from XYZ to something else. I was going to mention what you brought up is a very important point because um, unfortunately there are some vendors out there that say they're cloud, you know, they're cloud vendors, and what they do is they spin up a hosted instance for you, and then for single sign, they say they support single sign-on. For single sign-on, they support LDAP. Yeah. LDAP is not a single sign-on protocol, just FYI, guys. If somebody says they support single sign-on through LDAP, that means they're going to punch a hole into your data center to get there with LDAP. So that's not si single sign-on means that authentication happens over HTTP. <laughs> it has to happen on a modern protocol. Yeah, I, I will add to that. Um, I think you as the customer have a much stronger voice in pushing the ISVs to do the right thing. We tell them when we find about this stuff like, hey, you know, you really should use this as OpenID Connect and things like that. Uh, one of my customers the other day, actually, um, they said, yeah, same thing. We do single sign-on, right? So what they had to do was they had to put another sync engine in their on-prem environment to then sync those users up there. And I think it's going to probably be the same, like, password stuffing, like, same, you know, same sign-on. And the, my customer said, like, absolutely not. Like, we're not, we're not doing that. Like, we already have all our users and stuff synced to Azure AD. It does all these protocols. Like, you need to do this correctly. And you guys have way more power into pushing them to do the right thing than us as Microsoft telling them, hey, you need to get into the app gallery and let's do this. They're, yeah, they don't spend much on IAM features unless it's a customer deal that's a, a threat or at yes. risk, right? And it makes sense. It's not the right, they're bad guys. It's just they're not, they're, it's not their bread and butter. Um, and so I wanted to say um, about learning the skills and the protocols. Mm. Um, if you don't, you're letting your developers decide how to authenticate. It's kind of like being an AD enterprise admin who lets the developers decide if they're going to do NTLM or Kerberos. You never did that. You shouldn't. If you are, don't. <laughs> Stop if you are, <laughs> pick Kerberos, right? <laughs> exactly. <Yes. laughs> if you're not aware. <laughs> so similarly, you need to understand SAML, OIDC, and within OIDC there are flows. There's authorization code flow. There's implicit grant flow. There's ROPC. Which one to use when? You don't you, if they tell you they want to do ROPC, you tell them, no, come, let's meet, let's talk. Why do you want ROPC is the most trusted grant and it's the one where you're sending the user and password in the clear. Even, our, even OAuth 2 supports a flow, or OIDC, supports a flow where you can submit the credentials in the clear. You really don't want your, and your developers using that one. Yes, it's there for a very good reason, you know, some uh, highly trusted systems, but that's not what OAuth 2 was came to do. It's the other stuff that's cool about it, right? Yes. So, Understand the differences, uh, understand the fiddler. Can you read a fiddler trace for OAuth and see when uh, the authorization endpoint was hit, when the token endpoint was hit, right? That kind of stuff. I, yeah. I would say learning how to read a fiddler trace would be like learning how to read like a network trace, you know, yeah. 15, yeah. 20 years ago. Like you got, if you can't read that, you're gonna be hurting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Guys, great starts to all of these things. So um, let me ask you, what would you like to punt or promote in terms of resources that people can find? and if you want to be found online, how can people find you? How can they follow you? Blogs, URLs, any of those? Um, you can find me online at, at Mark Morrow on Twitter. Um, for uh, resources I think we should promote is the Identity Secure Score. Um, there is lots and lots of stuff out there in terms of what you should do to protect yourself. We just announced Identity Secure Score. Go take a look at it. It will give you a good, real nice roadmap of what you can do to improve your security. And we give you points based on like how much it helps. Yeah. And it's really easy for then you to take from the start and say, okay, maybe we started at a 22 
And over the last four months, I've moved us to 180. And you can show that to your management of like, because if you're doing everything right, no one notices anything. Yes. Right? So you can say, hey, look, and I'm following the recommended best practices. This is what we're doing. This is what I want to do next. Can I get buy-in? You can do that stuff. So that would be the one thing I would kind of plug, but at Mark Morrow on Twitter. Yeah. And my, I'm not as active as Mark, so my Twitter handle is kind of uh, depressing to follow, but it's... <laughs> <coughs> But it's at CyberTarek, Tarek, T-A-R-E-K. So at CyberTarek is I've my never name. seen him tweet one thing. So. I tweeted once this week about my <laughs> session. Um, <laughs> session codes, if you know them. I can get them in a second. But um, I wanted to say, um, to echo Mark's point, actually go to securescore.microsoft.com. Yeah. Um, if you have an Office 365 tenant or any Azure tenant, you can go there. It, it has the section for identity, the section for Windows, the section for Office. For each one, click on it, read the best practices. Um, if you're not up to date, if you're still pushing a bunch of junk on your Windows machines to protect them, really look at Windows Defender. There's a whole lot of goodness there. Stop running all these terrible EXEs that are making your user logons take forever. Yes. Do them a favor, please, and go look at the stuff. Same thing with Identity. Identity Secure Score is part of that. So, securescore.microsoft.com. I do have a session on Friday, and you can... I After the Ignite, you can uh, look at it. It's BRK3408, Azure Active Directory Best Practices from Around the World. So highly recommend you guys. Uh, and I, and I'm, uh, me and Adam Steenwick did uh, BRK3243, which was uh, Hybrid Identity Access Management Best Practices this morning. Adam is definitely a morning person. He was dialed up. He was yeah. dialed up. And then right after that, uh, Nitika and I did uh, BRK3251, which was um, closing the door on cybercrime. And we kind of ran through a lot of the recommended best practices you should be doing from an identity perspective to kind of secure your environment. And we talked about secure score in that one as well. Stunning, stunning, stunning. I want to thank both of you for your time. It's the, the end of the day here on Thursday. It's been a long day for everyone. You guys have done sessions. You've been talking to customers. So we really appreciate the fact that you gave up some of your time to spend it with us on the podcast. Happy to be here. Thank you very much for the time and the hospitality and uh, well, the last thing between you and, uh, what is it, Universal or Disneyland? Or which one yeah, Universal. <laughs> I believe it's uh, Universal this Universal, year. Universal, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Hey everyone, before you go, we just wanted to say thank you for listening. We really enjoyed putting this podcast together for you every two weeks. Please visit us at thearchitects.cloud alternatively drop us a tweet. We'd love to hear what you have to say. At the Cloud Arc.